0: The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations-China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org, or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. My name is Margot Landman. I am Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Aaron Halegua, a practicing lawyer and consultant who is also a research fellow at NYU Law School's U.S.-Asia Law Institute and Center for Labor and Employment Law. He is author of the report, Who Will Represent China's Workers? Lawyers, Legal Aid, and the Enforcement of Labor Rights, which came out this October. Aaron. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure to be here.
0: Let's start by setting the stage. When you talk about China's workers, do you mean all workers, migrant workers, or some other subset of the working population?
1: Uh, It certainly is intended to apply to all workers, um, because the report has a lot of facets. Some of it looks at law, which is national, and would apply to you know, all sectors and all geographic regions. Um, But I would say a lot of the problems that we identify and talk about are focused on sort of migrant workers, uh, low-wage workers, and sort of the most vulnerable in the workforce.
0: And what are some of the legal issues that these workers face? And are migrant workers particularly likely to suffer from labor law violations?
1: Uh, I think the precariousness of their situation does make them more likely uh, to suffer in a lot of ways, and as we'll talk about in a second, makes it more difficult for them to seek redress uh, for those violations. In terms of what we see, uh, some of the issues, frankly, are quite similar to what we see in any economy. Um, Unpaid wages, uh, work injuries, occupational disease, uh, what's staggering sometimes is the rate at which they occur. So China, even on a per capita basis, has a lot more workplace injuries, a lot more occupational disease and deaths, workplace accidents. Uh, the good news is that it has actually dropped you know, over the last decade, um, but still happens with quite a high degree of frequency. There's also issues about um, social insurance which are particularly poignant for migrant workers, because for a long time it was believed you had these people coming from one place in the countryside to work in the city, and the employers were obligated under the law to pay their social insurance, which would go to the local justice, the local uh, sort of social insurance fund in the city where they're working. The employers didn't really want to pay what is you know, even internationally a very high rate for social insurance in China, uh, and the employees We're sort of skeptical that if they went back home to their home province in 10 years, that they would see any of that pension money anyway, and so we're often willing to allow the employers to – or weren't watching them very closely, whether they paid the money or not. Now that the migrant workers, many are getting to retirement age or are planning and perhaps staying in the city – or it might even be going home, but China has said that they're going to reform the system so that they'll be able to get that money when they return home. They're starting to look into the fact of, and discovering that you know they haven't had contributions made throughout their time working in China. And if you don't have 15 years of contributions paid into the pension, you don't collect a pension. So this has been a cause of a lot of strife and a lot of the strikes that we've seen in China in the last few years.
0: Are they able to get back Payments?
1: So this is sort of a complicated legal issue um, and actually courts in different Courts in different regions have addressed it differently in terms of how many years you can go back and sort of uh, You know pay back the money that was owed over time uh, I think it's often when you have a strike or something like that It's sort of a political negotiation that happens with the labor bureau uh, in terms of what the law says you still have different localities dealing with it differently.
0: Can you describe a little bit about the pertinent laws and regulations, such as the 94 labor law and the 2008 labor contract law and labor dispute mediation and arbitration law?
1: Sure. I mean, what's interesting is prior to 1994, there was sort of a hodgepodge of different administrative regulations and policies that were held over from the planned economy. And 1994 was the first real national law to set uh, labor standards for the whole workforce. And so that, on paper, is a pretty good law in terms of the protections it provides to workers. It deals with minimum wage, you know, allows localities to set a minimum wage, Uh, maximum hours, overtime pay, holiday pay, maternity leave, uh, things like that. Uh, After roughly 14 years in 2008, uh, they decided to issue the labor contract law, which basically took several of the issues from the labor law and added some more specificity. It talked about labor contracts and basically made some situations where uh, instead of signing you know, they wanted to. I think it's sort of a pendulum swing. So the labor law certainly helped move from lifetime employment in the Don Wei system towards contract-based employment relations. And you know, I think after seeing that pendulum shift, uh, many in the Chinese government, particularly the trade union, thought that maybe it went too far. Work is getting too precarious. Uh, you know, these there is no guarantee of employment. Um, it's a little too volatile. And so they put in provisions that made it uh, easier for, or made situations where employers were discouraged from keep signing, you know, one-year contract after one-year contract. Those would automatically become uh, lifetime contracts if you sign, for instance, more than two of them. Mm. They also tried to crack down on labor dispatch, which is essentially the use of almost temp agencies, uh, the idea being that an employer didn't want to take on these workers as their employee, so they contract with a third party who's the technical employer and say they can come work, you know, then they're sent to the company in order to do the work. Uh, this allowed employers to sort of avoid a lot of the obligations under the labor law. And a lot of them wouldn't be, because they wouldn't be carried through by these smaller sort of dispatch companies. Mm. And so that was something that they also tried to rein in. Uh, so I think the short story is people saw you know, after the labor law, uh, they needed more protection and more strengthening, and that's what you got in the 2008 labor contract law. In the recent press, they've been talking about further amendments to the labor contract law, and all of the uh, signals seem to suggest that they are going to sort of bring the pendulum back a little bit away from worker protection in order to increase flexibility for employers, thinking that in the current economy, which you know, is stumbling a little bit. Uh, they want employers to be more willing to hire people, less afraid to get rid of people and terminate people. And so we're likely to see some changes to the more uh, robust protections that were in the original labor contract law.
0: Do we have a sense of when the revisions will actually happen?
1: Uh, I know that they've already started to reach out to experts and academics for suggestions and to talk about these issues. I believe it's already on the calendar of the National People's Congress to work on it this in 2017. Uh, we don't know for sure how many drafts it will go through. One of the really interesting things about the first labor contract law is that they got so many comments from the public. Um, and there's a debate about exactly how unique and original each one was and how many were sort of encouraged by the trade union to you know, have people just send in a form. Uh, but we don't know the level of public participation uh, that will happen in this law, but it's something definitely interesting to watch.
0: China is known for alternative dispute resolution, mediation, and so on. How does that play into labor law, workers' rights, things like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a huge part of it uh, in sort of how – on multiple levels. I would say first in terms of strikes and work stoppages and sort of collective protests that happen outside of the legal system, the Chinese approach is for the government to sort of proactively intervene in these and try to get them resolved as quickly as possible. Uh, and that can involve some combination of carrots, like actually paying some money that the employer owed but says that they can't come up with when a company goes bankrupt, Uh, and maybe some sticks towards the workers, such as detaining workers who they view as ringleaders and are sort of leading the strike and inciting trouble. Uh, Once you enter into the formal legal system, and this is not true just for labor, but for all disputes in the last decade, Uh, There's a huge emphasis on mediation and resolving these disputes in a harmonious way instead of through adjudication. And so we see it, you know, you can, you see a lot of cases where prior to filing the case, there'll be an effort to mediate it. Uh, After you filed, there will be another effort to mediate it throughout the proceedings. So for instance, you know, after the trial, but before decision's offered. Uh, issued, they might mediate it again. And even after the decision's issued, before it actually has to be enforced, we see efforts at mediation. And so there's a lot of reasons for it, um, but I'll stop there and just say it's certainly a big and pervasive part of the system.
0: From your paper, it sounds as though there is a vari- there are a variety of legal service providers. Can you describe them and how they fit together? Do they work hand-in-hand or are they quite separate, perhaps even competing?
1: Uh, That's a great question. I think it depends who you talk to. Um, I would say there is a little bit of competition at times. Um, I think it used to be the case that it was just hard for workers to find representation uh, even in the big cities, and I think you know, lawyers were very unwilling to represent workers for a variety of reasons, mostly economic. Um, there was a very underdeveloped legal aid system, and that's when you saw the rise of sort of these NGOs, uh, some of which were kind of you know more formal, run by actual licensed lawyers. Uh, and then some in the South, which were more sort of grassroots, maybe people who were formerly workers, they themselves had suffered some injustice and learned how to represent people, uh, and then wanted to provide that service to others. Uh, what's, it, started to, it has started to change, though, in that I think uh, the government wanted to take over more and more of this role in representing workers and sort of have uh, more of an exclusive control over the legal aid space. And what we've seen is that the formal legal aid program run by the government where they choose who qualifies for legal aid and then sort of give the case to private licensed lawyers to do the case, that system has expanded greatly in the last decade. Uh, For NGOs that didn't have, you know, for people who didn't have law licenses, there used to be a provision in the law that allowed them to represent workers or anyone else in court. And that law has actually changed in the last two to four years, uh, such that it is much, much harder for them to still conduct this kind of work.
0: On the legal aid front, is there reasonably good access to services, and how is it funded?
1: Uh, I mean, that's one of the central questions we tried to get at with the report. And it's, it's a hard thing to know and a hard thing to measure, because you know, so much of the evidence is anecdotal. Um, we know that the numbers are rising in terms of the number of migrant workers that get this type of help. Uh, but anecdotally, you still hear a lot of stories about workers that are turned away, uh, that the legal aid mostly is interested in helping those people who have a strong case that they think they can win. Um, in terms of how it's working, I think one of the issues that not only China, but you know, all countries struggle with with legal aid is how do you maintain the quality and really, how do you evaluate the quality of something that's so subjective, like the quality of legal services? Um, in China, what usually happens is a private lawyer will get a set fee to do the case, right? So do this case, we'll give you 3,000 quai, whether you win, whether you lose, whether it takes you a year or it takes you a month. And so the incentive for a lot of law firms is to do it as quickly as possible, as cheaply as possible. And so many people are concerned that the quality of services that are being provided is not very high. But in terms of how to actually monitor that, how to evaluate that, the Chinese government is working to try to figure that out, as are a lot of other countries. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an evolution that's taking place.
0: When I read the amounts, they seemed very paltry. It, it takes time to prepare a case. You're not really going to be very excited about doing it if you only get 2,000, 3,000.
1: Cool. I think that's certainly true for more established lawyers, particularly in the big cities. Compared to what they get from their paying clients, uh, you know, these amounts are not very high, which makes them uh, you know, less excited about providing this service. I think to some extent lawyers who are just starting out, don't have a lot of clients, um, feel like they can do a high volume of these perhaps, uh, are more interested in taking these cases. But that's the trade-off, right, that you're getting people who are inexperienced uh, sort of cutting their teeth on these legal aid cases as opposed to experienced practitioners uh, where you would expect expect a better quality of services.
0: What about the political environment? You mentioned several times in the paper the 2015 crackdown. And uh, what's happening with that? What's the impact?
1: Uh, It's hard to say. I think at the time in December 15th when, you know, there were 20 or 30 uh, labor NGO affiliated people that were sort of interrogated, many of whom were detained, and then several were arrested and charged, uh, four of them in the past uh, month or so have actually had their verdicts come down. I think when that first happened, it certainly had a bit of a chilling effect on people working in this area, particularly in the Guangdong region, Um, you know not sure if they would be sort of subject to scrutiny as well. Uh, And I think that's sort of persisted. I think the environment for NGOs is still a bit tight. Um, And, you know, but I think what I try to point out in the report is that this is also part of a trend um, that even if you go back to 2009, you see government documents that talk about how you know we want less focus. Uh, you know we want these NGOs in the labor space playing less of a role, and we need to provide more government legal aid, more trade union legal aid. Uh, you know the government should be out in front providing these services to workers, not these NGOs.
0: Is that a good trend or a negative trend? Where how Does it help the workers more, or does it hinder representation?
1: I think in terms of—I mean, I think it's undeniable that in some ways it helps workers, right? So certainly having more lawyers provide more representation in more cases overall is a good thing. And so I think the Chinese government gets some credit for that. Uh, I think the interesting question is— what is being missed or left out if you take the NGOs and the barefoot lawyers sort of out of the equation. And I think, you know, one area is going to be administrative litigation where, you know, citizens can sue the government for certain things. Uh, A lot less administrative cases. You know, lawyers, I think, from the start are sort of less willing to get involved in these sometimes sensitive cases. Uh, and a lot less legal aid cases or legal aid lawyers are provided for administrative cases. Whereas I think the NGOs, which were less constrained, were more willing to bring these cases. Also more sensitive cases like big group or collective cases. I think private lawyers are not as likely to get involved. Legal aid is less likely to get involved. The NGOs were somewhat willing to take these on. Uh, I think as they sort of retreat from the scene, there's a real question of, Who would be willing to represent these sort of group of workers in cases that are slightly more sensitive?
0: It seemed, and this will be my last question because we're running out of time, that you avoided the term class action. Is that because it's too American a concept or is it too sensitive or just not applicable? What's the story there?
1: Um, So class actions... Uh, I think it is sort of an American term, Uh, but China has the concept to a degree. So in law, there is a provision under the civil procedure law that allows you to bring what is essentially, um, you know, a group litigation. But even in America, we distinguish between two types of class actions. One is where basically everybody signs up affirmatively to join, and you can bring it as one case. Uh, So China has that concept in law. However, oftentimes it's difficult to implement in practice. And we haven't seen a lot of cases, and certainly in the labor sense, we haven't seen many cases that use that type of procedure. It's much more likely to sort of split them up into a number of individual cases. The second concept in American law that's sort of more aggressive is to say, I'm going to represent this whole class of people, whether they opt in, and the only way, you know, I'm going to represent them unless they affirmatively opt out Mm -hmm. Uh, that concept as far as i know does not exist in china Um, they haven't gone that far and uh, but i think you know what's interesting is to see if more can be done even around that first concept because a lot of lawyers don't want to represent workers with a small claim if they have to do each one individually right it's not economical and it's not efficient but if they if this class action procedure could actually be used uh, it might increase the incentives for private lawyers to be willing to uh, bring cases on behalf of workers even if the dispute is not that much i'll just give one example to end on uh there was a supplier of apple pegatron uh which there was a china labor watch report a few maybe a year or a few months ago talking about how workers were required to attend maybe a 10-minute meeting every day uh, that they weren't compensated for Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for each worker, even over the course of a year, they're probably owed maybe a few hundred quai in wages. So no, no lawyer would think to bring a case like that. But if you look at a workforce of 40000 that's literally billions of dollars in wages that were not paid to these workers. So if there was a robust class action mechanism, or if you looked at a situation like that in the United States, lawyers would be jumping over each other to try to sign up plaintiffs and bring that case. Uh, in China, as far as I know, Uh, no lawyer has tried to bring that case or seek a remedy in that situation. And I think that sort of demonstrates, uh, you know, how class action procedures, if they were sort of used more regularly uh, or people had belief that they could use these procedures, could really create some incentives for plaintiff's lawyers to get involved in these types of cases.
0: All right. We've unfortunately run out of time. Thank you very much for talking with me today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.